from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I am your host, Chris Campbell. Team T.O.T., what is up? Are y'all having a good summer? Spending some time at the beach? Working on that tan? Or maybe you're waiting for summer holidays to kick off properly in August. When I first moved to Europe, I was not prepared for how much of a thing that is. But now, having been here for a few years, I can dig it. Speaking of digging it, I hope each and every one of you listening is digging Arbitration Idol 2.0. We have had a great turnout thus far. We have a great lineup of guests and a great first wave of donations, and we look forward to finishing strong over the next couple of days. Don't forget, all you have to do to win a chance to have digital coffee and meet a leading figure from the world of international arbitration is donate one euro or more. We'll attach a link in the show notes. All right, let's get into this week's episode because her work is out of this world. Literally, I'm talking about Tamiya B. Aganaba, who is a professor at Arizona State University and an expert on space law and a leading figure on the policy, legal, ethical, and commercial elements of the development of the space industry. In particular, she is a thought leader on how those new technologies and innovations from other commercial sectors can be applied to the space industry and vice versa. She stopped by the digital studio for a fun and interesting conversation that I know you'll love. So, Team TOT, strap in, prep for takeoff, and enjoy my conversation with Tamiya B. Aganaba in five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world or outside of this world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, with me today, we find ourselves nearly at the conclusion of season three. In fact, this is our next to final guest for the season. And listen, as my reference was just a few moments ago, she is going to talk to us today among other things, about space law and all the things related there too. I'm talking, of course, of Ms. Tamiya B. Aganaba, and she is a professor and professional in the international law, and in particular, space law, space, space, space. I had a little bit of alliteration there. So, Tamiya B., welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, great. And Tamiya B, we're so excited to have you here with us today. So we're going to start with the question that we ask all of our guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? So I introduce myself as a British, Canadian, Nigerian space lawyer living in America. So I've, I've conquered a couple of continents. I feel really good about it. 
Um, and I think the important thing to know about me is really I'm focused on space and society. So all the societal implications of space exploration, what it means about who's invited to the table when we talk about law and governance. And I think we're in an exciting new age. I mean, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but just yesterday, Virgin Galactic flew their first commercial flight. Well, not quite commercial test flight. And Amazon are going to be Amazon's Blue Origin are going to be flying in a couple of weeks. So it's just a really exciting time for space, space enthusiasts, and people who are really trying to figure out what the next new wave of exciting things are. Yeah, I would agree. So uh, you know, the episode—it's a middle or early part of July when we recorded this. And yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, Richard Branson is, uh, I mean, the highest billionaire on the planet or something like that has gone to the the, the very edge of the atmosphere. Um, and there, there's a lot of issues that I guess we can talk to talk about therein. But let's rec- let's rewind for just a moment. Um, where did you go to school? What did you study? Or, or, you know, what got you interested in law in the first place? Yeah, so I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. I grew up in a really small town in England, and I went to university to study law at the University of Leicester. And I, to be honest, I found my study of law really, really boring. I was just not interested. There was nothing there. But I always wanted to do law because I always had the sense of I want to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. I want to promote human rights and all these things. And then I got to law school and it was just like reading boring books and things like that. So I was just like, oh my goodness, what have I, what have I done here? And when I graduated from university, my parents are Nigerian and they persuaded me that I should try going to law school in Nigeria to get a different experience. So I went to law school in Nigeria and that changed my life because when you graduate from university in Nigeria, you have to do a year's service for the country And I was posted as one of the first hires in the legal affairs and international cooperation department of the Nigerian Space Agency. So here I was exposed to this completely new field. And every time I told people that I work at the Nigerian Space Agency, they would just be shocked because they would be like, we don't even have electricity and you're working at a space agency. And that's when I really realized, okay, I'm really doing something futuristic here. And I decided to go study more. I went to do an interdisciplinary master of science and space program management before I went to do an LLM in space law and my PhD in space law. But after my PhD, I've, I felt that maybe I'm a little bit too niche. So I did my postdoc in international environmental law because I thought that that was the nearest terrestrial legal regime to kind of space law. And you know, and that just led me to this wonderful space of being a transdisciplinary, multi-sector kind of expert and got my job as a professor of space and society at the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University. So that's really my story. It was, and you know, I love telling the story because it makes it sound like it was some path that I understood or knew what I was doing. And I did not like all along the way I was just like oh my goodness who's going to hire an African space lawyer like what <laughs> jobs are there for that I've never seen a job description for that and so to to be able to do this journey that I've done you have to be very confident very entrepreneurial very able to sell yourself and get people on board with your vision um so I wouldn't say it's typical it's very atypical but it's been a really fun 14 years in this field 
Well, sure. And look, the the way that just a few moments ago you so casually said terrestrial as part <laughs> of your job, as part of your your experience. Listen. <laughs> But, but no, that, that's fascinating. Um, and it sounds like there are a lot of different elements to what has ultimately become a career or a specialty expertise in space law. Um, what are some of the, the those, I guess, skill sets that you think have, um, have been the most interesting in, de- in the developing this career path? So some of them, so I, I have to also be conscious to say that Space law does sound very exotic, but there's very, very core basic foundational things that you need to be able to do, right? So you have to be a good researcher and writer. Um, You have to have a good understanding of history and be able to think of, you know, how were these regimes developed? Who were the actors there? What were their wishes and desires? The same kind of thing you would need to do for any kind of international law, like being able to look at the preparatory works of a treaty and figure out what was the intent of actors. So we do a lot of work trying to figure out what was the intention behind the rules that were developed in space. And then there's a lot of actual regular work that goes into letting space activities happen. So for instance, you have a lot of people that work on the contracting side for like space satellite manufacturing contracts or launch contracts. You have administrative lawyers who work on how you get licenses from the government, you know, to be able to let your activities happen. You have telecommunications lawyers that work on the getting the radio frequencies to be able to communicate with your satellite. So the really exotic stuff is really what us academics do, where we figure out things like what would a moon colony like? What would the governance regime be like for like space settlement? or things like that. So the academics think of those more fanciful topics, but your regular everyday lawyers are doing regular everyday things, just applying it to the space context. You know, when people say space law, and you kind of talked about, you know, the exotic sort of things that might come to someone's mind, um, that could mean a lot of different things. And, mm. and I guess just in your experience, when someone comes up to you that may be a complete novice, like myself, when it comes to space law, and they say, and they start talking about space law, what does that generally mean? Is there any sort of like stereotypical thing that people typically mean when they say space law? Yeah. So when they say space law, they're thinking of public international law and they're thinking of the treaties that regulate the relationship between state actors in space. So that regime really comprises of five main treaties, the Outer Space Treaty, which is like a constitution of space, which has the broad principles such as there can be no weapons of mass destruction in space, there can be non-appropriation of celestial bodies, that space is to be used for the benefit and interest of all countries. So it's this very broad principles kind of treaty approach. And then there are some other um, agreements that were developed for more implementation things. So for instance, there's a liability convention which says like if a satellite falls on somebody's land, you know, that country, that launched the satellite is strictly liable for any damage that kind of happens. Then you have the rescue agreement, which is basically if something happens and an astronaut lands in a territory that is not theirs, you have to return them, you have to rescue them. So there's like this international regime that kind of exists that we talk about. There's a controversial treaty called the Moon Agreement, which basically tries to regulate like resource exploitation in celestial bodies. And only 18 countries are signatory to that, unlike the Outer Space Treaty, which has like over 100 signatories. 
and which leads some people to think that that moon agreement is not applicable. But it's really relevant now because space mining is starting to be a thing, like exploitation of resources in space, because we're trying to, we're now finding that there's water. And if you find water on the moon, you can break that down into hydrogen for fuel to be able to travel around in the solar system and oxygen to breathe. So you don't have to carry the oxygen from Earth for human beings. And we call this in situ resource utilization. So utilizing the resources that are in space, all the all the metals that we can find there to build outposts and to build stations, all that is kind of what we've got coming up in the future. And all that is basically regulated by international space law. There are a lot of gaps though, because this regime was developed in the 1960s and 70s as a framework, but it doesn't have the implementing features to it. And so that is what the new era of space lawmaking is going to be about. Well, sure. And, you know, even as you say those things, you know, I think those that are following the news are aware that there are not only companies, but states that are trying to do what sounds like something that is counter to one of those space law constitutional principles of non-exploitation of celestial bodies. It sounds like there are entities that are working against that now. How have you heard how companies or states are going to plan to try and get around that? Is it an amendment to the treaty? Is it a new treaty? Um, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so what it looks like is basically that national governments are making their own interpretations of what those provisions mean through national legal mechanisms. So for instance, the big international law provision that is kind of like controversial is Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty says, there can be non-appropriation of outer space by occupation, by means of sovereignty, or by any other means. And so the problem is just that appropriation has not been defined. So some people think that if you, you, if you exploit resources, you are appropriating that land and you are saying that it is yours. But the American interpretation is that you're not claiming the moon just because you take resources from it. You are basically utilizing those resources. And it's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's an iffy argument to make because if you take it, then you're claiming it. But they're saying they're not claiming the land, they're just claiming the resource. And that's the US interpretation. And, and three other countries have taken that same interpretation. So Luxembourg, the United Arab Emirates and Japan have all also developed national rules that give their citizens the right to exploit and own resources from space. And I think other countries will, will follow suit. So we're gonna see a trend in that interpretation. There are some persistent objectors who kind of say, hang on a minute, we need to take some time to figure out like what does it actually mean to exploit resources that belong to all of humanity? Um, you know, we should still be talking about that. But I think private industry and commerce have really been lobbying their governments that, hey, we have this activities that were planned and we need you to give us an interpretation of international law that will allow us to do our activities and give us some protection, even if it's still controversial on the international plane. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the, the, the time for considering things is, is, without action is kind of passed and that anything, any rules that come up will have to be as the work is being done. <laughs> I think that's what's gonna happen. And I think that's, I mean, it's a very US perspective, right? Let's not hamper, let's not hamper innovation. Let's get started and figure it out as we go along. 
And, you know, that's why some people are like the, the U.S. are being bullied, it's because they're just going along, creating this regime and saying, we'll figure it out as we go, like an adaptive governance kind of framework, like let's figure it out and let's adapt as we move on. Um, and they're saying that the people who are saying that we should slow down are really going to stifle innovation because businesses are ready to go. But that's, that's you know, your typical, that's your typical argument that we see in other areas of international governance too, right? Sure. So, so space, space is no different. Like I did a TED talk where I talked about space being a canvas for the human imagination and like following this narrative of like seeing space kind of like in the Star Trek version of, of the world where space is like somewhere where we're going to be different and we're going to be better. But I think what we're really seeing in this, what I call the space 5.0 era, the ethics and governance era, is really that space is less a canvas for the human imagination and more of a mirror reflecting back at who we are and what we do here on Earth. So we can't think that just because space is somewhere different that we act different. Um, but I think that's one of the fascinating things that makes it really interesting to study space as, a, as an imaginary, as, a, as an experiment box to say, well, how can we think about being different? If we're gonna have future societies, you know, permanent settlements on the moon, why don't we use this as an opportunity to think different and to act different because it's a completely different environment. But I think it's the realist in me always says, well, human beings are human beings and they'll always take their attitudes and their grief and their, you know, their issues wherever they go. Well, right, I mean, you know, I think what's probably the easiest sort of comparison to a lot of listeners would be, you know, when folks left the quote old world to find, to discover the new world um, or to discover the Americas, discovers the, the wrong phraseology, probably to explore this new parts of the world that hadn't been seen by Europeans at the time. That was a lot of the conversation that was had. It wasn't as if there was a utopic sort of um, mindset that was adopted. There was still war. There was still pillaging. There were still all these the worst elements of humanity. It was just now no longer in Europe. And what was the known world? It was now just transported across the sea. And why would we think there would be any different? You might literally have Star Wars than in space. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so you know, people are always going to be comparing Star Wars and Star Trek. I'm not a sci-fi person, believe it or not. Um, I've just heard these analogies so many times to be able to say space is about Star Trek, not about Star Wars. But I'm like, <laughs> you know, I think I think we've we've we only have to, like you say, only have to look back at history and see that we're already repeating history um, by having this capitalistic mentality being the driving force about having this manifest destiny kind of you know, mankind is meant to explore and like, and, that, and and the capitalist argument is always, well, it's not the same because there are no indigenous people. There's nobody in space that we are harming. So that is a myth of space that there's no victim because I think back in the day, they didn't even see the indigenous people as humans. So they didn't see them as a victim. So we don't know what a victim could look like. So we have to start with sustainability as the main principle right from the get-go based on history. Sure, I think that that's, um, that, that's well said. Um, and I guess kind of just springboarding off of all of those points, um, again, a lot of the people that will be uh, tuning in for this episode 
will not be experts in space law, probably. Just going to make that guess. Um, and so the question I would have is, or what are some of the, maybe what would conversations going on in the space law community or just the industry, I guess at large, that might be surprising um, to, to the layperson or the average person? So one of the interesting discussions that I'm really following is, and I don't, is really how do we characterize space, right? So from, you know, most people don't know that like, well, or they do know that military is the biggest user of space, right? And so it's kind of like, they classify space as a domain and a domain is kind of something that has to be, you know, where war happens. So it's a war fighting domain. It's something where you have to protect your assets, et cetera. And I'm trying to say, should we be thinking about space as an environment, an environment that should be protected, kind of an extension of the human ecosystem? And that would make us really think differently about what rules we kind of put in place. Because if it's a domain, then it's just about, well, how do we protect our assets up there? How do we make sure no one interferes with our activities? That would be the kind of regime that you would be looking for, a very defensive one. Versus if it was an environment to be protected, you would be looking at how do you make activities flourish? It would be kind of a more positive um, way of looking at how do we ensure that this space environment can be kept sustainable so that everyone can continue using it and enjoying it. And so basically with that framing of looking at space as an environment, I'm thinking about how environmental and sustainable development principles can come in. And, um, and what's really interesting is there's a case in the federal courts right now that is basically from a company that's trying to say that the Federal Communications Com Commission um, should have applied the NEPA Act, National Environmental Protection Act, to satellites that are being launched by SpaceX because they should have done environmental impact assessments to see the risk of these satellites to the space environment and to other space activities. And that's a really interesting framing because the NEPA Act, the National Environmental Protection Act, applies to human environments. So the question for me is like, could we call space a human environment? On the one hand, I think why not? Because humans do operate in that realm. But on the other hand, people would say, based on how the NEPA Act was established, we really think of human environments as the place where people live, and the place where people are directly affected. That's why you have to think about environmental impact assessments on, on the everyday living activity of people. Um, but if we're really gonna become a multi-planetary species, I mean, Elon Musk wants to, to colonize Mars by the end of the decade, and a lot of countries are talking about having permanent settlements on the moon, why not see space as a human environment, which would bring in, solve that gap of saying that there are a whole bunch of laws that would be able to apply because space is a human environment. Others would say all those laws were not created for the unique experience of space, so we should really be thinking about a, a, a unique regime that governs what all these activities in space would look like. So there's really, there's really, it's, it's, it's a field that, that doesn't have very many answers, more like a whole bunch of questions. And I think it, the reason that I like talking to non-space people is because I'm saying, how can we apply the things that you've been thinking about into a new environment, right? So if you're a constitutional lawyer, 
how does your experience of like figuring out how constitutions work and apply, how would that apply to a new settlement in space? You know, and so I think it's really interesting for non-space people to start putting the space, thinking about how their work applies in this new context, because I really tell you, international law is such an old field. There are very few new areas that are being dynamically changed. And along with cyber, you know, space is one of those. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think what you're describing there um, at the end of your comment is kind of the ability to kind of step away. You know, you're not so close to the problems or the issues that you get tunnel vision um, and you can kind of see the whole issue or how other th things or concepts can be applied. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the question that kind of follows from there is, you know, well, I guess here's so here's a question first um, before we kind of split off into that. One of the topics that we really lean into on this show uh, is uh, maybe, I guess, an old idea, but it's dispute resolution, you know, mediation, arbitration, litigation, all of those types of things. How has that conversation sort of evolved with relation to space law? Has anything in particular that sticks out in your mind? Yeah. So, you know, us academics and public international lawyers obviously are always looking to the ICJ, the International Court of Justice or international tribunals to kind of see what the case law looks like. And in space, we only have one case that was where the liability convention was actually pressed into service because states pretty much deal with most state space stuff on a diplomatic level. It's like consultations and conciliation and things like that because the national security and the defense elements is so huge in space. Commercial actors primarily use arbitration, um, again, because secrecy is such an important thing for actors. But I think this needs to change in that as we're going to have, as space is going to become an everyday thing and we're going to have regular individuals going to space, we need to understand what our rights are. We need to understand how decisions are kind of made. And so there's a lot of innovation going on right now, particularly in the United Arab Emirates with their Courts of Space initiative where they basically launched this initiative to, to research legal innovations in dispute resolution in space. And they are training their judges so that the Dubai can become like a, a dispute resolution center for space. Um, and so, you know, it's like, this is a topic that people have written about it, but like, there's just been not that much known because it's all been kept, it's all been kept under confidentiality. Um, but, but like I say, uh, and, and, and a lot of the contracts between space actors have this um, waiver of liability provisions. So they don't hold, you know, they don't sue each other unless they really, really have to. So I think over time, what we're going to see is as those liability waivers have to come down once space becomes democratized, um, we're going to see a lot more action, even though, of course, we don't want to because we're at a stage where it would be very detrimental to the, the, the growing sector if we had a lot of cases. And that's why, for instance, for these space tourism activities, they're being regulated by informed consent. So any of the, the space flight participants wouldn't really be able to sue if something happened because they're taking these activities as high risk, kind of like adventure sports, like bungee jumping or something like that. Sure, sure. And I, I almost wonder if it is one of the situations where 
for the space fair for the nations that are already spacefaring if they kind of lead the charge or they have the most interest in developing a dispute resolution system if that burden sort of falls on them first because they actively i.e yesterday i.e now for some years have companies and commercial interests that are that are headed into space um, i wonder who kind of takes the spearhead there yeah and and like on the international level there's for instance the permanent court of arbitration has some rules for space activities but nobody's really using those <clears throat> so it begs the question really do we need specialized systems for space when really the disputes that are going to happen yes they're very technical but they're going to be regular things contract disputes um you know, liability disputes. Those are just regular things that like, maybe if people just get awareness as to the technical aspects, they can just use the regular legal system. And I think this is what Dubai is trying to do in that it's trying to say, you know, let's develop this program where we train specialists to understand the distinction or the uniqueness of space, but they're going to be regular lawyers with like a regular background. Sure. And well, you mentioning Dubai kind of, I guess, triggers another thought. Um, as you've kind of mentioned as well, there have been some industries, some other commercial sectors that have kind of grown up, I guess, parallel or along with the sort of democratization or commercialization of space. Um, what have been some of those industries? And have you found that any of the skill sets that you've kind of developed in your career have kind of... Uh, are well articulated and highlighted and for working in these industries yeah so i mean it's really interesting because during my postdoc i was working on emerging technologies more broadly so for instance um i was working on geoengineering climate engineering which is how what technological tools do we develop to fight against climate change and there are all kinds of technologies that are being developed like putting salt up into in the atmosphere so that it reduces the rain or like even putting sunshades into space to reflect the sunlight from space and all these things have this a lot of the same governance questions like who gets to decide you know like if we're going to use some technological tool that affects the whole atmosphere or the whole planet again it's humanity that is the potential victim and it's humanity that is the person that we is the entity that we have to refer to so then we have a question of standing so it's the same in the space context really thinking about you know these new emerging technologies that affect all of humanity how do we go about regulating them and how do we get the people who don't have the power structures to be part of the conversation when they have more pressing and important issues to deal with such that they think you know, like, for instance, I mean, go to Botswana. Do they care if there's water on the moon? Well, I'm saying that they need to care because they have experience on Earth where they didn't take into consideration, you know, how resources would be exploited and, and things like that. And so if you don't start in the beginning and the formative stages of the development of governance regimes for activities, you get left behind and you never really catch up. So, you know, my experience has mostly been in the environmental sphere. And even when I was looking at like cryptocurrency and the emergence of blockchain and all these different technologies, all the governance questions all seem to be the same, you know? And so the skill, the skill which comes from the general legal skills is basically how do we balance competing interests? Because that's 
pretty much what it is. It's just like you have, multi, especially in a multi-stakeholder environment. Um, and I think this is a new thing for us space people because space has primarily and historically been a governmental domain. And it's only in this new era that it's now we're seeing university actors, we're seeing private companies, we're seeing developing countries. So, so as you get into democratization, you get into multi-stakeholderism and then you get into balancing competing interests. And I think a lot of lawyers have experience at at least two sides being having different interests that they need to balance. And so I've been doing training, like I did mediation training at Harvard last year because I was trying to see what, how can we be less combative? Because when humanity is the victim, you know, it's not about, well, satisfying one group or the other. It's really everyone needs to be brought along. And so I was thinking about mediation and especially not only interest-based mediation, but the training at Harvard is really about, you know, um, empowering all sides to be able to come up with a solution rather than the caucus style of mediation, whereby you have a mediator shuttling between the two and they don't talk to each other. But this kind of conciliatory mediation that is saying humanity is the victim. We all have a say The the future generations are the victim. So how do we all come to the table and figure this out all together in an outcome that we're all going to understand? So I've been really thinking a lot about how mediation works. A lot of people would say that it's it's kind of naive because it's only in certain contexts that that you can get people to the table with trying to think of each side and trying to think of other interests. Whereas most actors are really thinking of their immediate, you know, how do I how do I get what I need from this situation? Sure. No, and, and it sounds like that that mediation skill that you've developed is is going to, going to be important because certainly there will be uh, instances and opportunities where uh, companies that might be rivals in one context might need to work together, or especially nation states. Uh, right, and I think if you think about it, the unique thing about space is once you get up there, you're you are so dependent on the technology and the people that take you there. It's not like you can just walk away. You know, so you can't, it's not like you can start fighting up in space because you have to rely on those actors to bring you back down to earth, to give you oxygen. You have to rely on each other for everything. So we really have to have a conciliatory mentality. Like if we're going to actually live and work and operate in the space. And I think the International Space Station, which has been the biggest, I think the biggest scientific collaboration that we've had, has really been a great example because I think even though there's been geopolitical tensions here on Earth, say between Russia and the US, like for instance, when Crimea happened, and um, they still continued working together on the International Space Station, which has led people to say that the International Space Station should be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize um, for like getting all these actors for like the past 20 years to continue working together. So that is the spirit of space that even though like the rhetoric of the spirit of space is that even with all the conflicts happening, we should still be able to get along because, because you are dependent on each other to actually survive. Yeah. And I, you know, and so I wonder in addition to that sort of mediation skill set, one of the things that you did talk about um, earlier was your ability to sort of coalition build and kind of develop strategy. Yes. 
Um, how how does that come in handy, I guess, day to day in your in your work that you do? Yeah, so it comes in really handy because you've got a bunch of different factions in the space world. You can imagine you've got a whole bunch of space geeks, people who are like, I've dreamt about space since I was two years old. And then you've got people who are like, we have so many pressing and important issues on earth. People are starving. There's no water in Flint. You know, it, it's just like, and, and you guys are wasting money talking about living on the moon. And so, you know, trying to constantly communicate why space is important is, is, um, is a huge skill set because most people don't realize just how dependent we are on space. When they think about space, they think of the moon landing and they think of really fanciful things like that. They don't think of the satellites, which basically help us with GPS. If it wasn't for satellites, we wouldn't have navigation in our cars. If it wasn't for satellites, we wouldn't be able to use ATMs because um, to get money out because it's the GPS satellites that do the timestamping for global business. You know, we wouldn't be able to know like about our borders and our fisheries if we didn't have Earth observing satellites that can look down on Earth. We wouldn't be able to. There's so many things that we wouldn't be able to do if we. There's been initiatives like trying to communicate to people if we had a day without satellites, and people would be shocked because space is becoming critical infrastructure, but it's it's invisible. So people just don't know how integrated it is into society. And so we as space people have to do a better job of rather than saying, oh, I love space and I want to go to Mars, of really saying space is critical infrastructure. Without it, modern society would not be as it is. In fact, it's even satellites that help with planes, that get planes to be able to move around and to know where each other's plane is, to know where you're going to land, all that is done by satellites. Well, yeah. I mean, and even I don't think we could have tales of the tribunal without satellites either. So, I mean, look, it's a winner's winner's game for everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, no, but but I think that that's that, that's true. And that, that's really interesting. Um, do you think that, that there are any other transferable sort of um, elements to the to the space industry that I guess maybe the opposite way? You know, we talked to some extent about how other industries can be applicable to space, the space field. I wonder if it's also in reverse um, that skills and practices from the space law world or the space business world can be applicable the opposite way to um, things here on Earth. And I guess we're talking about that a little bit. Yeah. Right now. So, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that because space is so hard, um, you know, you have to be so accurate. You have to be such a good communicator to communicate complex principles and break it down for people to understand that it's a huge skill set that if you're able to, I mean, if, if you're a rocket engineer, you need to, you can't be using rocket science to explain to a politician about why they should fund your project. You have to break it down. And so I think the, the, the experience that you get from space is really talking about abstract contract, abstract abstract concepts and making them real and making them understandable to people who don't have any background. And um, I think the successful people in space who are doing well have been able to do that. I mean, if we look at Virgin Galactic and Richard Branson's space company, I mean, they basically were like, how are we going to take something really complex as rocket science and break it down so that it looks like cool, luxurious travel? And I think 
it's easy, it's harder to go from that end to the other than it is to be like, how are we gonna take our airplane and like make it a rocket, right? So, um, so I think those are the main things, like your communication skills and teaching skills, being able to explain to people how things work is really the main um, thing. And then the other, the other takeaway is how do you speak to get people excited? Because I think that the cool thing about space is that, I mean, even though I had to face the giggle factor for years when I told people I did space law, they'd be like, is that a real thing? Like, who are your clients, aliens or whatever? But, but you really learn how to make what you're talking about fascinating. And so I feel like even if my job tomorrow would be to like sell screws, I can try and, I can use my space experience to be like, yeah, this looks like an ordinary screw, but guess what? If it wasn't for the screw, we wouldn't have the International Space Shuttle that would be able to take us like a million miles away. You know what I mean? Like that that's the fascinating thing that I've learned about space is that there is a way of like attributing or like always connecting everything back to something cool and exciting that can make people reimagine or think differently. So I really like that about my experience from space. There's not any topic that anyone can talk about that I can't bring a space angle to. So you, you've in some ways become uh, a storyteller and uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, storytelling is huge. And I think, you know, um, and I think, but historically because space was just for a few people and it was mostly technical, people could just be dry because they were talking to themselves. But now that it's democratized and spaces for everyone, it needs all different voices and it needs explaining why people should care, not just to the geeks or just to the technical guys, but for like, how does it inspire that four-year-old, five-year-old child to think that they can do the unachievable? You know, that's who we're really talking about. It's really next generation stuff and it's super exciting. Yeah. Um, so for all of that excitement, um, I guess we do have to have a little bit of the cold water element too. What are some of the challenges that you typically see when it comes to, uh, the development of this industry in this field? So some of the challenges is that the views are very polarized, Hmm. you know, it's very, it's very either or there was big arguments. Do we go to the moon or do we go to Mars? You know, and like you've got people who are like entrenched in one view or the other. Um, there are there are real entrenched views about you know what kinds of missions we should be doing, who should be going to space. There are entrenched views about how should we share technology, um, whether technology should be shared. So for instance, should we have this competitive, like the US is trying to be a leader in space because space is like, is diplomatic and it's about soft power. So is it in your interest to bring others along or are you constantly trying to be in a race with others? You know, we've always had this dynamic of the space race and using it to prove your superiority. So we really have that, I mean, and then at one point in the US, we had these export control rules that basically stopped foreigners or stopped transfer of technology to, to other countries because I think there was a problem with the Chinese basically using US technology without permission. And so there's a lot of secrecy 
and all that in the space domain. And so that's one of the challenges because on the one hand, you're trying to get everyone excited to space, but on the other hand, you're very concerned because it's a huge national security risk. Now, launch technology, the distinction between launching a satellite and launching a ballistic missile is like tiny. There's not that much difference between the two. So there's a lot of non-proliferation agreements. There's a lot of, you know, how do we think about weaponization and all these really hard, hard topics alongside the topics of the inspirational potential of space. So those two worlds live together. And again, like I said, the military are like one of the biggest users, but of course the military are always outside of the regime, right? Like the regimes never apply to them. And so it's all well and good developing this whole regime for how people should operate. And then the military, it doesn't apply to them and they're the biggest actor, you know? So those are some of the, the issues we have. And then the second issue we have is this distinction between people who believe in regulation and people who think that space is different, that space should be somewhere that we should be able to do whatever we want in because there is no victim. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, if you talk about regulation immediately, they're like, you're gonna kill the industry, you're gonna, if you regulate and, and all that. But I think that it's, we've got to have, I believe in adaptive governance. I believe in letting people try things out but I think you have to be fast on the like, what are the implications of any new activity that you license and how are you reactive really quickly um, to any changes that kind of happen. So these are some of the challenges, I think, and moving forward with democratization, as always is the issue. How do you balance multiple interests and how do you figure out who you should bring to the table? Because the more voices you bring to the table, the less likely you are to have any agreement. And, and it's difficult for you, like bots, you, the Philippines who spends, you know, $10 million a year on space versus the US that spends $40 billion a year on the space. Can you really have equality? You know, and so we're all pushing that all voices should be equal and at the table. But we, when we use our realist lens, you have to look at, well, who is the greatest investor and who has the most to lose when you when you talk about these activities. Sure. Yeah. Those are some those are some challenges um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and trying to find out the answers, I guess, um, what you and your colleagues, contemporaries are going to continue to be at the forefront of. Yeah, exactly. I'm always trying to think of like i'm trying to get examples of how do you balance interests and bring people to the table and i think this is not even just a legal issue right like since we've had all these social movements and civil unrest and all this stuff happening that's what everyone is thinking about like competing interests and and i and i know that you're going to ask me maybe you can ask me right now about what i'm reading right now but it's kind of like it's this book called um um, it's this book called Why Are We Polarized by Ezra Klein. Hmm. And it's really asking that question. And it's like, it's polarization is systematic, you know? And it's like, society seems to work best when people are like completely at odds with each other or society seems to have created itself that way. Um, the middle ground is not very cool. And the middle ground doesn't win you votes, you know? Well, sure. And I think, what is interesting about, uh, you know, I've heard a lot about Ezra Klein's book and I've, I've got to check it out myself. 
But where there is an opportunity for sort of a novel sort of way of thinking about this is that for the vast majority of humanity, at least for the foreseeable future, there isn't there isn't a, a, a tangible physical presence for them in space that the decisions that they have will impact them. But it's not as if most people are going to have a reality where they're going to be able to even ever go to space. So that puts mm. a lot of humanity in the middle ground, so to speak, that, you know, you are dependent on space in the ways that you've discussed with satellites, but you're not going to ever able to go actually go there. So you do find yourself of like you can't really quite go completely polarized on this topic because you both need it and um, will not be able to fully realize its utility in your life at the same time. So I don't know. It's interesting. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about. But, you know, the next phase of what Richard Branson's flight um, tells us is besides just space commerce, it really could make the case for point to point transportation. So that is going from New York to Beijing through space where it would only take one hour. Sure. Sure. Right? You, so you like, can kind of like go into orbit. The Earth continues to rotate. Uh, well, sort of. Okay, I'm not a physicist, um, but like the Earth kind of like keeps rotating in the way that you can come back down. Sure, in theory, it made yeah. sense. It made sense in my mind before I started trying to articulate astrophysics. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because what what the Richard Branson flight did is they went up into space. Sure. They went into suborbital and then they came down and landed in the same place. But like the next step is to go up into space and land somewhere else. Sure. And, you know, I, I think 10 years ago for my team project at the International Space University, we assessed the potential for point to point transportation. And then it was like it was still far away. But now that we've demonstrated that we can go up and down, you know, why not go up and across? Sure. And that would make it open to a lot more people. Well, it would, I mean, it would, again, be revolutionary in the way that the Wright brothers inventing flight in the 20s was that suddenly, okay, it's not so crazy to go from New York to LA or to go across the ocean or to do any of those things. And the ability to go from someplace in the US to Beijing in an hour, I mean, that's that's mind boggling. It would completely change how we could imagine um, all sorts of things from human transport to cargo to all sorts of technologies. Yeah, I think when we were doing the business case for that, we were talking about like like emergency stuff. Sure. So like if someone needed a heart transplant or like, you know, like so cargo, I think, was the first client. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely 2.0 the Wright brothers like you said 2.0 how did life get transformed by aviation um this is just the 2.0 version and it would bring i mean yes it would still be rich people but we still have enough people that you know business people and and all that that would see the value in reducing um you know reducing how much time they spend traveling Sure. Well, um, I was going to say a trickle down effect, but I kind of uh, I abhor <laughs> that technology, that terminology. So I'll say a rising tides effect instead um, that, you know, the rising <laughs> tide of everyone getting better. <laughs> Got to have that impact. Um, listen, um, our, our time is flying by. It's literally uh, jumping by faster than I can realize. Um, so I'm going to shift and ask you some other questions just a bit. Um, 
you know, you've talked about all of the interesting skill sets that you developed and and cool things that you've got a chance to do and really sort of pressing things. I'm curious to know what have been some of the guiding forces or mentors, role models or, or things that have sort of shaped your career as it's gone along? So one of the things that has been really interesting is um, the awareness that these jobs are not, so in my career, there's not gonna be a job description that's out there for me. And there's not gonna be a ready-made position. I have to create and I have to make those jobs exist for me. And so when I look at job descriptions, I really say, okay, I've seen this job description in this context. How would I apply that to something else or to another company or things like that? And so it's really like, so I really, really look at the thought leadership um, landscape and like who are people who are thought leaders in their field that create new thinking because it's just that ability to stay at the forefront and the ability to let people laugh at you or let people think what you're doing is crazy because you're just a couple of years ahead of where the curve is. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple of people that I think are really interesting that it sounds really controversial and it makes me really sound like a millennial, but like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's yeah. like, he like, he, he he rubs people up the wrong way, but he's just always talking about, you know, being one step ahead and, you know, not letting the nose get to you and things like that. And I think that's really something that I followed. In the space law world, it's really difficult to talk about Elon Musk and Bezos because they are very divisive, divisive actors. But I think no one can say that Elon that they haven't completely transformed the industry. They've like Elon Musk created something out of what looked like nothing. And so you've got to and he's done that in multiple sectors. So like as whether you hate him or whether you think he's crazy, like I mean, you probably do have to be crazy to completely revolutionize rocket technology. Right. And so so I really admire like these people who who they don't only have a vision, but they're willing to stand behind their vision and put everything they've got to creating that vision. So I really admire that. In the space law world, I have to say, the only role model that I really have is very, very unexpected. And it was my very first boss in Nigeria who hired me at the space agency. I mean, he's a quiet guy, you know, but like, he was a visionary and really thinking about how do we bring space law to Africa? How do we ensure that the Nigerian Space Agency becomes an international player? I mean, it's it's easy it's easy to be somebody that has a 40 billion, it's not easy, but like to have a $40 billion budget and be like, I'm gonna be the number one. Try being a developing country with a budget of $100,000 or $100 million and saying that you're going to make a footprint anywhere. And so 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 those people I find really inspiring. People that can do something with nothing and create impact. I think that's what the Indians did with their space program. So they had a mission, the Chandra 1 mission back in 20 a few years ago. And they went to the moon for a cost of like 50 million dollars, whereas like an equivalent NASA mission would have probably cost 500 million. 
you know, so yes, they have less expenses because of the minimum wage and all that, but still, you know, you to be competitive, you've got to be innovative. And so I really admire that. And my colleagues at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society are also inspirational because they're all about looking at how do we take society along with us as we innovate and what are the risks that is posed to society through innovation. I think people who think in that lens as tech people, I find really exciting because then we can kind of avoid some of the challenges that having a real tech focus brings, you know, into life. So those are some of my role models and the driving forces. No, no, those are all great. And I, I think you make a, a very profound point that I think you can appreciate the contributions of someone without necessarily needing to like love every element of their personality and their life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you answered this a little bit already, uh, mentioning the book from Ezra Klein. Is there anything else that, uh, what else is on your bookshelf or anything else that you're looking forward to reading? Yeah. So I just read a book called Losing the Sky by a professor called Andy Williams. And basically it's this, there's this conflict going on in the space world right now between the astronomers and the space industry because over the next decade we're expecting to launch over a hundred thousand satellites sure. and the astronomers have a problem with that because you can see the satellites in the sky and there's no longer going to be dark skies so if the astronomers are trying to take pictures of the milky way or the solar system they basically have all these streaks in their pictures where the satellites are moving so they're kind of arguing that we actually have a human right to a dark sky because we have a connection with the with the stars and with the sky. And so all these space activities are really going to be getting in the way of that. And we have to be thinking that one does not outweigh the other. So it's a really interesting book by an astronomer trying to give the astronomy perspective as to why we should be concerned that, yes, I mean, everyone is excited about having multiple space activities, but because there's no hierarchy for space activities, there's no one activity that outweighs or is more important than the other. So these two sectors, astronomy and the satellite operators, are now battling that how do we ensure that the night sky is protected? It's a really fascinating read. And um, I'm really watching to see how the satellite operators are going to pacify the astronomers and the people who think they have a cultural relationship to the sky. It's the same with like, the same with like people who are really afraid that once we start having mining operations on the moon, you're you're going to be able to see it from Earth. Mm. And that will really change our relationship with the sky and how we've always seen the moon and 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 all this. And really that symbol of human power and human exploitation will be inspiring to some, but jarring to others. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those, I think. You think something you can look back thousands of years since humans began to write that they described the moon and how it looked and how it appeared. And that's sort of a common thread throughout the history of humanity. And if you all of a sudden have, ah, then there was a crane up there getting some minerals. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just destroys a little bit of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But like I said, it excites some people because that's really like innovation, right? Like, all those people, all those billions of years, when they were looking at the moon, they were thinking that the moon and the stars was dictating to us about, you know, like astrology and all that, dictating to us about how we live. But we've come to the point where we can go out there 
and not only exploit the resources, but live and work and operate in that environment. I mean, it's it's inspiring also. Sure. No, I I, I would agree. Um, I hesitate to, to ask this next question. Um, what kind of music are you into? I'm going to assume space jazz. I don't even know what space jazz is. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I just put the word space in front of a genre, that's all. <laughs> well, I do, I, there is a lot of songs that, there are a lot, you know, space is very um, pop culture. So there's a lot of references. Like I have a playlist called Space Jams, which is just like, because on Clubhouse, I don't know if you got your audience know Clubhouse, it's this new social media app that is audio only. Mm-hmm. There, there was a group on there that was just basically like playing music that was inspired by space. And so I love listening to that. And like there are direct references to space in some of this music, like songs called Satellite or, or Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra, you know, ones that we know. And then there are others that have indirect references or that's kind of spacey or intergalactic. So I love all that kind of music. Um, I love classical stuff. I like Miguel and like, um, you know, like stuff that everyone listens to kind of regularly. But I also love Bossa Nova jazz. So I love Argentinian and like, I listen to like eclectic. I think it's important to have an eclectic taste, like listen to a whole bunch of different kinds of music because it inspires you in different ways. Um, You know, so I really listen to everything. But I get very excited if someone has a good space recommended song. (laughs) <laughs> okay no we're gonna have to get our hands on that uh that space jams playlist that that's pretty that's pretty fun that that's cool um yeah <laughs> it's on spotify okay okay so we're we're winding down here and we just got uh, these kind of couple of final questions here uh to me be the first one is let's say you were approached by a student or a recent graduate someone that's looking to break into uh this field how would you uh, recommend that they do that? Or what advice would you give them? So I would say that you have to have a transdisciplinary mentality. Like if you're a siloed kind of person, like I'm only gonna talk to people in my sector, I'm only gonna talk to lawyers in my field, you're not gonna get very far because you have to communicate across disciplines and you have to figure out with that communication across disciplines, how do I figure out what the important points are and then figure out how to distill that into an agreement or into, you know, into some final outcome? So, so that's why the engineering mentality is useful, even if you are an artist or a lawyer or something like that, being able to break things down into its constituent parts and being able to talk across disciplines is probably the number one thing that you need to make it in this field. And then secondly, tenacity, like being able to just be like, there's no job here. How am I gonna just bulldoze my way and persuade these people that they need to hire me? You know, my first uh, space job that I got in Canada for a space consulting company was basically that I said to them, developing countries of the future, there are 80 countries that they're monitoring that have space investments. And even though the US is the biggest, all those, most of those other countries are developing countries. So I kind of persuaded them that you need an expert that is from the developing country that understands that world. So they never, they never hired for that position. They never advertised for that position, but I was able to persuade them that with my background and experiences, 
that they need someone who's thinking about things in this way. And so having that boldness of just being able to say, I have something of value to say here, and I'm just gonna go out there and just persuade people. And I think it's easier than I'm making it sound because as lawyers, for instance, you know, it's easy to go, not easy, but like one could approach all these tech people because they're not thinking about the legal aspects. They're not thinking about the socio sociological aspects. They're just thinking about their technology. And so you go to them and you're like, have you thought about the implications of the activities you're doing? Have you thought about how environmental law applies? They, they haven't thought of all these things. So just, just talking to people broadly and, and demonstrating your expertise is really gonna go a long way. No, I, th I think that's great advice. And that those are all of those points um, uh, throughout the various guests that we've had have been reflected, that tenacity, that sort of curiosity, that ability to talk to folks across sectors and not be so, again, so close to the problem or to your topic that you can't see the, the other things around it. But I mean, but it's interesting though, because saying that, I've heard these different debates about whether you niche or whether you specialize, right? Yeah. And it probably, it probably makes sense to be an expert in something and then broaden. Sure. Um, because once you've demonstrated the ability to do something in something, people would trust you for other things. But I think you read widely all the time anyway, so that you read widely and you read, read deeply. So you have to do the two so that you can talk to the experts, but you can also translate to the wider audience. No, that, that's a great bit of nuance <clears throat> that you absolutely have to have that sort of a mastery of some topics um, in order to be able to get that sort of uh, credence and credential in order to um, earn your way into some of these conversations. That's absolutely true. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, well, look, final question um, before we wrap up. Um, let's say that it's five o'clock on a Friday. You don't have any sort of um, work or client things upcoming how would you spend your ideal weekend and assuming covid no covid okay so i can answer this because i can just say what i do so definitely it would be like not even five o'clock four o'clock it's definitely got to be a beautiful cocktail somewhere uh, like it's just getting the weekend vibes going and the beauty of academia this is why i'm not in practice I choose my hours. <laughs> so if I want to have a cocktail at four o'clock, I can and I love it. Um, Saturday is all about activities. So my daughter and I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, she's only two, but she comes with me to class. And so we do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and then we go swimming. We live in the desert in Arizona, so it's super hot. So it's hard to be outside. So we'll usually go to the indoor playground as well. Um, and you know just keep active and and all that and then sundays are for like relaxing and thinking about the week ahead um when i get to the point where my daughter's going to be older i can bring in travel again because she's only two so it's a bit difficult to travel around with her but definitely i think travel is so so important to just open your eyes and to keep you fresh and all that so i think um, that's super important and having lived and worked in four countries I think that my career has basically been made by the fact that I have that different lens that I can bring because I've, I come from such a varied background. Like 
having been to law school in a village in like Africa yeah. and also been to law school in Canada and been to law school in the UK, you know, I can take the good that comes from everything. And I tell you, Nigerian law school, it may have been in a village somewhere, but like I learned a lot because people really, people really like value their education and they don't take it for granted at all. Not like when I was in England where sometimes I didn't show up to class. Huh. You know, you can't do that in Nigeria. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. So, right. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, uh, look, as I said just a few moments ago, uh, the time has ex literally rocketed by. Um, the The final question that I have before we uh, sign off is, do you have any shout outs? Anyone you would give a tip of the cap to? I want to give a shout. I mean, I'm not going to name them all, but like my students, it's like one of the best things about being a professor and one of the hardest things, challenging things, is that your job is to inspire and motivate the next generation, but people don't realize how much they inspire and motivate us. You know, like once you find a good bunch of students, it's like you just tell them an idea and they run with it. And all of a sudden they've created this completely amazing concept that was your idea, yes, but they brought life and meaning to it. So the biggest shout out is to all my past students, and all my future students to come. It's just like, thank you for making me look good. That's essential. I mean, I'm going to be really selfish about it. They make you look good when they come <laughs> out great. Um, so yeah, shout out to my students. Ah, that's fantastic. Well, I think that that's great. And um, I don't know your students, but I'm going to give a tip of the cap to them as well. I hope, I trust that they're listening and that uh, they'll hear this uh, <laughs> shout out that you're giving them right now. Um, well, to me, it'd be, Thank you so much for coming by. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, if I'd had a pen and paper, I would have been scratch, scrawling and writing the whole time. And that's what you have heard in the background. But really appreciate you taking the time. We'll have to have you back sometime. Thank you so much. And I am Timia Biaganova, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you. all And we will see you next time. Space, the final frontier. These are the tales of the tribunal on their never-ending quest to... <laughs> All right, listen, I've always wanted to begin a segment or a show that way. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? To me, Tamiya B's work is so interesting and important because it's imagining a future that is literally just on the horizon of human imagination. And we may be approaching it sooner than we think. Tamiya B is really active online, so if you found today's episode interesting, you should absolutely follow her on LinkedIn, Twitter, all the online stuff. She's a wealth of space knowledge, and we'll have to have her back sometime. Two final things before we wrap up. This episode right here is about to end, and when it does, after you leave a review and follow and share the show with a friend, I want you to head over to the Just Giving page for Arbitration Idol. Neither share that page with a friend you think might be interested in participating or making a donation, literally even one euro helps, or to donate yourself. Donations can be made anonymously and we appreciate any and all contributions. The deadline to donate is coming up soon and winners will be announced in just over a week. Don't miss your chance. Finally, we are just one week away from the end of season three of Tales of the Tribunal. The season finale is going to be a fun one with a ton of great information. If you enjoyed this week's episode, next week's episode is in a similar vein. It's truly the stuff imagination and dreams are made of. 
Not about space, but something that hopefully will be equally as inspiring and push some of you dreamers out there in the right direction. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions, and show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Show interns are Matthew Cotton and Ramatulahi Jallo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.